and welcome everyone to part nine of the Anderson Countdown. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and this week we're discussing Wes Anderson's second foray into the world of stop-motion animation with a dystopic adventure film, Isle of Dogs. Before we get to that, however, with me as always, I have my Countdown co-hosts, Scott Harvey and Jay Habib. Scott, you first. How are things? I'm good. Uh, things are good. I, I was amusing um, to you guys the other day that the episode that just came out was our Rushmore episode. And uh, yeah. we started off by talking about the NBA playoffs in Coachella, mm-hmm. which are two events that just happened uh, as did. of the time of this recording. Yep. Uh, the only problem is, of course, when when we recorded that Rushmore episode, that was last year's NBA playoffs in Coachella. Um, we were so thinking ahead, though. Of, we were thinking ahead. We were, yeah, no, we, we really were, and uh, we obviously had had the long game in mind, but um, it was yep. kind of funny to think about. People will, lis- will listen to this, I mean, first of all, maybe people will listen to it, but also um, <laughs> people may- will listen to it and think, oh, yeah, of course they're talking about this. They, they must have just recorded this last week, and then when, when Jay starts talking about Brooklyn and Boston playing in the playoffs, they're going to be like, what does he know? <laughs> and so yeah, uh, yeah. i don't know what, what act at coachella was he talking about because you know well i believe last year was wasn't last year when kanye was supposed to be there and like he was replaced by mm. the weekend or something because he wouldn't get vaccinated I, in fact that didn't, might then the, didn't the weekend do like a horrible performance there too last year too after he like he goes to the replacement and then like kinda... well frank ocean was obviously the one who did the horrible performance this year but sure. um but yeah i think that might have been the talking point but um yeah anyway and, and... if you guys want to talk about that at, at all then we can we can do that and save this episode for next year so um you know just, look just I, all i'll say is that um i don't know if you guys are fans of blink 182 or not but uh now former ceo of nbc universal jeff shell was a very close friend to the lead singer of blink 182 and was at blink 182's concert the first weekend of coachella with <laughs> I believe it was Charlie D'Amelio, the TikTok star. Um, there was like a, there's like a video of him backstage with Charlie D'Amelio. Wow. Um, the question is, who do you consider to be the lead singer? Because both Tom DeLonge and Mark Hoppus sing. It's it's Mark Hoppus. Yeah, Mark. Mark, Mark I think, is, is, was the person he went to high school with. He's close friends with. And um, this weekend, th- their Coachella performance was roughly a couple hours after Jeff Shell was uh, relieved of his duties at NBC Universal, <laughs> um, and during this concert, they at some point, uh, unclear if it was a direct reference to this, but I, I think it probably was, uh, did voice support for his wife, saying "We love you, Laura," which is the name of Jeff Shell's wife, uh, in the middle of the concert, which was just top banter, honestly, absolute wow. banter. Um, you know, that, we'll be coming to no know further on this matter, but but hilarious stuff i'm sure you probably can't so yeah well i don't know anything that hasn't been reported in the trades so sure anyway that's my fun we should put this in the can and now we can just fast forward a year that'll be a fun story a year from now for people to hear like oh yeah jeff shell i remember him (laughs) jay we haven't heard from you yet what's your coachella take for this year Um, i'm still wrapping my head around everything you just addressed sure um yeah what's my coachella take never did it Really should have, given where I grew up, but oh, I don't know. You can endure the four-hour drive to Palm Springs. <sighs> nah. Right. Sorry, you got to wait till you're rich enough. You just you just blade in. You just take a helicopter. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. You you think the Roy family, you know, does the drive up when they go to Coachella? Like no way. I don't even think the Roy family understands what cars are. I think they it's exclusively helicopters. No, except for when they're pulling up to World yeah. Trade. 
sure. know, to take over and whatnot. Yeah, of course. But I'm good, Scott. I was thinking about you guys this week, uh, just to date this a little bit more. The I don't New think you G- could possibly date this any more than we already have. <laughs> we've been pretty explicit about what I, I don't know if we've given an exact weekend, but I'm going to say that yesterday, uh, the new John Mulaney special, Baby J, dropped. Yeah. Um, and it might sound like a weird thing to think about you guys during, except for the fact that he performs on stage in this, like, very purple suit against these very flat monochromatic backgrounds that look like i mean the whole thing basically just reminded me of the grand budapest hotel like i'm totally just reaching and it's only because like i watched this movie very recently but like the purple suit like in the monochrome backdrop like yellow monochrome backdrop i was just like i'm thinking about this movie the whole time yeah john mulaney elite jay how similar is it to the actual show that that you went to Oh, good question. Because um, you also went to that show. I did. I, yeah. I mean, it. I think it was pretty similar. Like we had the Al Pacino bit. Yeah, he did the Al Pacino bit. He did the okay. reading the the GQ interview at the end. I don't know how much of this we're supposed to say. I guess it's all out there now. And yeah, this episode won't drop for a little bit. So spoiler warning. Sorry, months. But I think th- this this is still like almost two months away from from dropping. Okay, so we're fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. It. Uh, I, I would say it was in my mind it was about 80 percent the same like not cool. not for nothing i don't mean that as like a no you know, no it's a cool. bad thing just like you and i both saw this show separate nights but it, it was a lot of the same stuff but it was you know still really funny and yeah i will say the biggest cool. disappointment of when i watch baby J the special on netflix is that two seats over from me i won't have a trump supporter talking under his breath about the opening acts being way too woke um and never getting never. extremely disgruntled and at one point having to walk out of Madison Square, uh, out of at least the stage area of Madison Square Garden to go get another beer. Um, don't know why he was there, to be honest. I was going to say, it's New York. It's John Mulaney. Like, I'm, I'm very yeah, my, my guy has done so many jokes about Donald Trump before. I know. I was going to say, didn't he, like, he made his name, like, appearing on SNL and doing, like, some pretty, like, strong political, like, satire and stuff, right? Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's how he made his name per se, but he did have one special where, like, he does have a, a quite a long bit about you know the horse being loose in the hospital. Yeah, which is Trump and um, in, in the White House, um, yes. and he's very explicit about that, of course. So yeah, I, clearly my guy didn't do any uh, homework before coming to the show or before purchasing tickets. To be fair, I don't think he purchased the ticket. I think his sister, who had brought him, had purchased the ticket, and. Uh, I'm not going to even wonder about what the dynamic is there for the two. I'm going to say, how this. do you even know that was like, like you got to know these people or are we just talking about you or are you the person and your sister took you and you were disgruntled? Sure. <laughs> Why don't we just leave that up for ambiguity here? If anyone doesn't know me well enough to figure out which of those is the answer, maybe, maybe it was me. On an unrelated note, if anyone knows who Scott's sister is, <laughs> please that, come forward. Please reach out to me as well. Please <laughs> add S. Shelton 2013 to let me know who my sister is. Would love to meet her. But uh, shockingly, guys, we've gone on for a little bit here about a variety of topics, none of which is what we're actually supposed to be talking about today. Of course, as I already mentioned, this week's penultimate film in the Anderson Countdown is the 2018 animated feature Isle of Dogs. Written and directed by Wes himself, Isle of Dogs is set 20 years into a semi-dystopian future in the fictional Japanese city of Megasaki, where the authoritarian mayor Kenji Kobayashi, voiced by Kunichi Nomura, enacts a vendetta against man's best friend and uses the risk of an outbreak of snout fever and canine flu, potentially spreading to the human population of the city, uh, sound familiar guys, as an excuse to banish all dogs to the nearby trash island, soon to be known simply 
as the Isle of Dogs. In spite of the protestations of Professor Watanabe, voiced by Akira Ito, the pro-dog political opponent of Mayor Kobayashi, who states he is close to a cure for canine flu, the decree is immediately ratified and dogs begin to be deported, the first of which is Mayor Kobayashi's short-haired, oceanic, speckle-eared sport hound, Spots, who served as his distant nephew and now ward Atari's bodyguard dog. Fast forward six months and Atari mounts a rescue mission for his canine companion, hijacking a propeller plane and attempting to fly to Trash Island to search for Spots. After crash landing, he meets a dog pack ostensibly led by an all-black stray named Chief, voiced by Brian Cranston, and a pack of dogs including Rex, voiced by Ed Norton, King, voiced by Bob Balaban, Duke, voiced by Jeff Goldblum, and Boss, voiced by Bill Murray. Teaming up with this ragtag bunch of dogs to help him search for spots, Atari and co. scour Trash Island for spots, all while evading the rescue teams sent by Mayor Kobayashi and racing against the clock before the next phase of Atari's villainous uncle's plan to exterminate the canine population begins. And with that, Jay, let's go to you first. Isle of Dogs is Anderson's second swing at perfecting stop-motion animation. I remember you being pretty positive on his first outing, and I'm curious, did this sophomore animated feature have the same charm and thematic heft as Fantastic Mr. Fox and Anderson, Anderson's other recent live-action work, or was this a rare misstep in the second half of Anderson's career? I'd call this a, a positive showing. I, I don't think it was some of his best work, personally speaking, just to like jump right into it. We, we can talk about the animation style first, which I just, it didn't take me that long to get used to. I actually found it kind of charming. Um, and the fact that he was using a new setting was pretty interesting. Again, like, you know, maybe there's something to be said for like, I wonder how accurate or like watered down it is, uh, you know, given his perspective. But I, I was into it. Um, I was into the style. And again, like, you know, it felt very much like a Wes Anderson film. Again, even though we are, using stop motion like you know we have these chapter title cards again and these very symmetric shots and it you know it was funny like I, I was you know jotting things down early on and I was like F. Murray Abraham really does make a cross-species disease not sound so bad with his very like comforting voice um and as you kind of alluded to like the theme did hit a little bit too close right like the disease like crossing the species barrier and hitting us but I mean, overall, like I, I did enjoy the story. I did enjoy the format. You know, I had several moments where I'm like, this is supposed to convince us that he doesn't hate dogs. Um, you know, I mean, there was, there was one moment like, you know, where maybe it'll be obvious if you've seen the movie, like there's kind of a fake out that happens that like when it happened, I started writing down like all the reasons why Wes Anderson hates dogs. Cause I was just like, I cannot believe he just did that. And then, you know, it turned out he didn't, but you gotta you let know, him cook, Jay. You gotta let him cook. I hey, for I thought he had cooked them. I thought he had literally cooked them. <laughs> I mean, maybe literal is a strong way. Okay, I mean, I, we can just get into it. It's that you know when they're when they're talking to the the party has split up, right? And like the four dogs are in like the one trolley going like overhead, um, and Chief uh, and Atari are you know like down below, and then the four dogs just end up in the compactor. Like I legitimately thought he had just killed off like four of the five main dogs, and I was like. I literally just started writing down all the things he has done to dogs in all the movies because I thought I was going to come in today and be like, this is how he atoned for it. And then, you know, halfway through writing all that down, like, oh, look, they're not dead. I mean, it was cute. Like, it, 
I don't want to beat around it too much. Like, I I think it was a cute story. I don't think it was like my favorite thing of what he'd done, what he's done. And, you know, there's some stuff we can like nitpick about it, but overall still like a good time. Like glad I watched it felt very much like part of, you know, his filmography didn't feel like out of character either in terms, in terms of style or quality. So solid outing. All right, Scott, how about you? Sure. Yeah. No, Scott, this is an interesting case, of course, of something that's happened a couple times now with the Countdown series, which is we're talking about a movie that we talked about when it was released on our original Some Like It Scott podcast. Um, I think we were both pretty positive on it at the time. I really enjoyed the movie when I saw it in theaters back in 2018. Um, You know, hasn't necessarily sat with me as much as other West movies have over the last five years. Um, so I was interested to revisit it. I do think it went down a little bit um, in my estimation on rewatch. I still really enjoy the movie. I don't think Wes Anderson has a bad movie. Like I feel, you know, I can, I can say that at this point, cause I know there's only one left and I know what it is, but um, this would probably be in the lower tier, but I still really enjoy the movie. I think, yeah, the animation is maybe the strongest point. Um, of the movie I think it's beautiful to look I mean I'll go ahead and spoil my favorite moment is just like the 32nd scene where they make the poison sushi that they give to like the the chemist the professor Um, that is like gorgeous to look at like I could just I just wanted to keep rewinding and watching that happen again the way it all you know is is so precise um, is you know kind of stunning to to look at it's 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 how the medium should be used but there are other moments like that as well um i think the the world that he creates on trash island and then you know in this sort of dystopian japan is all really cool um and you know further establishes him as a very talented visual stylist yeah and i also think you know some of the the thematic stuff definitely hits a little bit different in 2023 i mean just the idea of the you know, a, a president, a high-ranking political official using a global pandemic to, like, as, as a smokescreen, basically, to further his own political objectives. And, and in the case of this movie, um, you know, extermination of a marginalized group, I guess, dogs that, um, you know, he, he already had preconceived notions about. And, you know, also, obviously, the, there's a lot about the development of a vaccine in here and, um, the the leader, Mayor Kobayashi, like, you know, suppressing the information about the, the vaccine. So um, giving misinformation. So obviously some of that stuff hits different um, given what we went through in the past few years. So I guess it's fair to say all of that stuff worked for me. Um, you know, Scott, I think you're definitely going to bring this up. And um, I mean, it, it may be something we talk about. There are a couple of things that, you know, are, are perhaps a little culturally insensitive that um, culturally insensitive things about the way that he tells the story here and, you know, one or two particular characters perhaps um, that are introduced. You know, I don't think it's something egregious. I don't know that it was, yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't say that it was intentionally, you know, malintended, but um, I, I do understand where you're coming from and that's probably something else that brings the movie down just a little bit in my estimation i think the plot gets maybe a little bit convoluted 
Um, there's also a lot of characters, which is not anything new for a Wes Anderson movie, but when they are all dogs and they do their best, you know, they do their best to have the little, you know, name tag callers. Obviously we can identify some of them based on the actors who are voicing them, but it does feel like, you know, some people get lost in the ensemble and some of the supporting characters, perhaps even like, you know, the four dogs, like, um, that you mentioned, maybe do get lost a little bit in the mix. Five, yeah. Um, do get lost a little bit in the mix. Unlike in other, you know, like we just talked about the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is a movie where I think like even the one scene performers, like, you know, you remember them. They leave an impact on you. Um, I think it's, it's always harder to leave an impact in a, in a voice role for one sure. scene as opposed to. But I just mean even even the characters sure. themselves don't. Like for for me, like the the emotional core of the movie is Chief and Atari, like that relationship that starts to form. Like really, those two characters is is what I connected with personally. I don't necessarily f- feel like there was a lot outside of that. I mean, you know, when Spots gets introduced, like that kind of brings a whole layer into it as well. But um, you know, I didn't feel like the whole ensemble was perhaps used as well as it has been in other. Wes Anderson movies. So those are some of my complaints, but overall it's a very enjoyable experience. Um, you know, I still definitely recommend the movie. Um, mm-hmm. It's not one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies, but it's a Wes Anderson movie. So it's good. And I like it. Yeah. I think the the main thing, and I felt this way about a lot of Anderson's, you know, even like the last four movies we've talked about in the podcast, probably. Just extreme, extremely watchable. So I'm like, I turn this thing on and it, I'm just sort of swept away. And all of a sudden, you know, I don't even realize it. And the film's like more than half over. Right. It's just the way that he's able to craft these stories. And I think to your point, Scott, the animation is really remarkable. I think I think it's a huge step up, honestly, um, in the quality of stop motion animation from the from Fantastic Mr. Fox to this. I think the quality of the animation in Fantastic Mr. Fox really actually does work for that story. It, it almost sort of is like played out in a way where it kind of looks like a children's book, right? Like it kind of looks like a uh, the novel that it's portraying. But if you if you had that same aesthetic, that exact same aesthetic polish in this film, I think it would look a little bit out of place. And I think that leveling up that quality of animation to be just a little bit shinier a little bit more polished i think really benefits this sort of futuristic dystopian setting of megasaki quite a bit and yeah i i think the convoluted nature of the plot it yeah look this was one of my longer introductions i think to to one of our episodes in terms of describing and setting up the plot of the film there are a lot of moving parts in this thing and frankly i'm not even sure there needs to be um and this is the most this is what makes not to sort of jump out and, and jump straight to the one of the con, like the controversial elements of this film straight away. But I think one of the most on this rewatch, one of the most baffling things about the fact that they have this, you know, he's chosen to create this character of Tracy Walker, this foreign exchange, American foreign exchange student who's voiced by Greta Gerwig. One of the most baffling things about this is that it, it's pretty unnecessary, I think, for this character to even exist at all it's not like this is an essential character who's coming and save the day this feels like a brutally non-essential character who's coming and save the day and it just kind of feels 
a, a bit strange and really out of place. I don't want to dwell so long on it because look, it's, it's baffling. It's extremely misguided choice by him. Do I think it's sinister or intentional? Not really, but I, I don't necessarily view that as like a full excuse either. I mean, it makes it a little bit better. Sure. But it, it was a really strange decision. I can't believe that someone just didn't drop him a note. Be like, you sure you want to do this? Um, that's the part that confuses me most. Cause it's not like it was just a bunch of Americans making this movie. It's a, it's like a co-pro with like Germany on this thing. It's not like they're the only people making this movie. I mean, they're again, all white still probably, but um, it, it was just really strange, really strange decision-making. I think in that part, because I think on the other side of that coin, there are some efforts made in this movie. I think that are culturally sensitive. I think there's, you know, this whole thing where he's not forcing all these, you know, some of them like fairly famous Japanese voice actors to speak in English. They're speaking in Japanese and he's integrated a way into the story for this to seamlessly sort of be translated for the most part. Sometimes they end up with just captions or whatever, but um, it, it is sort of tactfully handled, I think, for the most part in the film, which is something that is an interesting counterpoint. Um, it, it just seems to have gone a bit unnoticed and I can't really help but wonder why like how did how did not a a room full of test screeners not be like hey man come on don't do this um i've wondered that in many movies sure so. no 100 percent. it's not it's not like wes is the only person who's, who's fallen victim to this and i think it's it's something that maybe we could talk about more in a retrospective episode that that we'll do but wes maybe not a director and writer who's known for uh, the most his most inclusive works. Uh, obviously, I think we're going to talk about a film next week that has a pretty integral African American lead in the film, um, at least one of the short films. But you know, Courtney B. Vance is like the second or third black actor that's been in one of his films. Yeah, I think it's just an interesting thing that I I had been thinking about as we sort of gone movie to movie. I don't think white directors and writers have to make inclusive films like that, but it's just a, it's just an interesting thing to notice. Anyway, uh, to get back on topic to the main part, I really enjoyed this film a lot. Like, I still did. Um, I think there are some glaring stuff. I think the plot gets super convoluted in the second half of the film, which is what I originally meant to say before I jumped into sort of the more the controversy of it all. But yeah, once like Spots comes into the picture and like the dog is rescued, like the the very straightforward element of the plot is like set is like sort of the box is checked and it's set aside. Everything else from there gets very complicated, um, which is like fine, whatever, all good. But uh, that that the film starts to go a little bit downhill. The best parts of the movie for me are sort of everything leading up to to that point, which you know is like you know half to two thirds of the film. So there's still a lot there to love. And Scott, yeah, you're talking about the the carefulness of the craft in the sushi scene. I think hard to not say that that is a pretty impressively animated sequence overall. Voice cast ensemble, loved it. I love these guys. Maybe they're not being used most effectively, but it is funny how there's always like one new guy, Brian Cranston, in, in this one is sort of like the big new face. I guess Leah Schreiber. Schreiber. Yeah, I was gonna say Leah Schreiber too, but Brian Cranston being sort of the lead. I mean, I guess you'd say he's the lead with Atari, who is voiced by Cody Rankin. I think that they do create a pretty good pair, and, and I think Cranston is great. At the center, he gets his George Clooney uh, role into the animated film, I guess. And and Ed Norton, Bill Murray, Bob Balaban, Jeff Goldblum. What a fun time. Great great time hanging out with the boys. The boys, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I do got to say, with the news of F. Murray Abraham being borderline canceled this week, 
Wes maybe needs to choose more carefully who he's working with. Um, maybe Jesus, it needs to be wait, said. Wait, what? Uh, okay. I literally let, just said a my, thing about him this, at the beginning of this. Oh, my God. Look, look. My understanding is he made some jokes that crossed the line, which is uh-huh. something that – how old is he? 80-something-year-old man? Uh, the, the excuse you know, you're about are, to make is, is maybe a weird one, I think. but Are prone to do. I'm not making an excuse for him. I'm just yeah, saying yeah. as far as cancelable offenses go – Sure. Uh, you know, there, there, we have heard much worse in the last few years, and I'm not sure that this is something that Wes Anderson necessarily would have witnessed anything. Uh, you know, portending this. On well, the I, I wasn't, so, I yeah, wasn't saying maybe. otherwise. I'm more, I'm more just making a bit of a joke. I don't think we understand. We know the full, the full details on that F. Murray Abraham situation because yeah. I think some off-color jokes don't often get you fired um, on a set of sure. on a set of a TV show. So I think there might be a little bit more. Uh, going on there maybe that we don't know about but yeah yes what what he apologized for was some off-color jokes yeah. i'm not sure that that was the extent of it but uh just sorry jay you were gonna say something there oh i mean nothing just feel like i just stepped into a rake like those cartoon characters <laughs> in terms of just no, like no, no, you're not fine. You're fine. Re- i'm like oh yeah his voice is so calming and like you know <laughs> this episode is gonna drop the artist later yeah yeah i know it's a that's a deeper conversation. We don't have, have you seen the film TV. Tar. Uh, <laughs> have you seen the film The Artist? No, I'm kidding. I mean, yeah, I don't know. We we can we can move on. Sure, sure. Well, how about that? I mean, I started talking about the lead voice cast here. Why don't Why don't we go to you, Jay, to to get us back on track? Brian Cranston is the is you know arguably the sort of most central, well known voice actor in this. What did you think of him? Did you think that Koyu Rankin as well, who is the sort of unknown Japanese voice actor that Wes tapped for this in the lead role of of atari what did you think of these two i thought they were great um i you know especially just enjoyed when the two of them start bonding when they get separated from the pack like you know it's it's funny like with some of these voice in some of these voice roles like i tend to latch on to like you know something i know you from and just be like you know like that dog's Walter White. Like that's exactly what I'm thinking. And like, it's just kind of funny to hear like Walter White, you know, talking like this. Um, not that, you know, some of his, uh, some of uh, Chief's early, somewhat toxic alpha behavior isn't something that Walter White would have said, but it just, you know, it makes it like weirdly enjoyable for me. But I thought they did, they both did a great job again. I think bringing just like emotion to the role um you know talking about i mean just like their past and bonding and like it you know i i actually to me like even though like the film itself like i've you know i've mentioned like may not be like towards the top of things we've seen for wes and probably won't stand out for me in terms of like things i watched this year say like i think that uh their performance along with uh another voice actor which i'm sure we'll get to when we go into the supporting cast like actually pretty memorable pretty impactful yeah cranston is great i mean you know maybe i'm jumping ahead a little bit but i think no go for it cast casting him and Liev schreiber as brothers was kind of a genius move just because of their voices they both have that sort of gruff deadpan type thing about their voice that like you know again you could kind of mistake their voices for each other honestly in this sort of environment and then of course you add in the fact that the dogs look like each other by the time that they meet up it's like you understand some of the confusion maybe that um you can have but anyway um i I still think it was you know a very nice bit of casting and 
they're both actors that I generally enjoy seeing in things, especially Liev Schreiber. Um, so that's that's great to see him pop up, and obviously we'll see him pop up again in the next film. But um, but yeah, no, I, I think both of them are really good. Again, uh, Chief is like this gruff sort of, um, you know, he's been astray his whole life. Like he's jaded about the world around him. He's jaded about, you know, humans relationship with dogs. Um, and so Cranston, again, I think his essential sort of, I keep using the word, but gruffness is, is good for that role. Um, but then he does, you know, he is able to bring out a more emotional, open-hearted side to his performance as, you know, Chief starts opening up to Atari. So um, I think, you know, it was, it was a nice bit of casting and he does all that he can with the voice role. Yeah. Going deeper down the cast list, Scott, I think we can just keep it with you here. You have the more ensemble, obviously the biggest parts of the ensemble, maybe people like Bill Murray, Bob Balaban, Jeff Goldblum, Ed Norton. Uh, I don't know if you'd count Ken Watanabe, in there, but Kanuchi Nomura, who plays the mayor, anyone from this like deeper list of supporting cast, even deeper than that, if you want to go that way, uh, jump out to you. I mean, I did actually like Scarlett Johansson a little bit. I just, I thought that, sure. you know, again, we know what she can do with voice roles. Obviously there, this was after her role in her, which is, you know, kind of one of the most spectacular voice performances you'll hear. Um, I just think something about her, she, she has a real sort of warmth and empathetic quality about her voice. And I think that that is true of the character that she's playing here. So um, of nutmeg. So I, I thought she was strong. I like Francis McDormand as well as the interpreter really, you know, not, not a super big role, but I just think, again, she has a real authoritative quality to her voice every time that um, she comes on, on screen. And so I think that was good for the role that she was playing. And then the whole ensemble is good. Again, I don't, you know, the 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 characters don't stay with me as much because maybe just because they're dogs. I don't know. You know, it is somewhat hard to distinguish. I also think it's um, fair, that, like the character, like they are not characterized, yeah. like particularly strongly outside of, I mean, frankly, Chief, even Atari. I don't know if he's super characterized that well, which are like potentially is one of the controversies of the film. Yeah. Because there is the whole element about Tracy. There's an element also of people, some people saying that it's weird how watered down all the Japanese dialogue ends is. Maybe it's good that and it's sensitively portrayed in the way that it is handled in the film in terms of captioning or subtitling or um, translating, et cetera. But the problem is those translations, the way that it's like, it, maybe the medium is sensitive, but like the what is translated is doesn't allow for a level of character development that the English speaking voice actors have the opportunity to get, particularly chief probably. Sure. Yeah, no, I, and I, I see where they're coming from on that. Certainly. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, these people like Bill Murray, Bob Balaban, Jeff Goldblum, they're, they're in the bag for West at this point. They, they understand the rhythms animated voice performance or not. Um, you know, they kind of fit like a glove at this point. So um, there's really not a whole lot else to say about what they do here because it just, you know, feels like part of the world that he always creates. Jade, any particular ones besides what Scott mentioned stick out for you? 
Yeah, uh, Ed Norton, uh, another just like, I don't know, cutesy, like charming role for him. I I, I mentioned like, you know, aside from the two leads, there'd be one performance that just kind of like sticks out. And for me, it's him. Like, I think he just, again, has this, this like, it's almost like the scout leader quality from yeah. Moonrise Kingdom, right? Where from like the very beginning when they're the two packs of dogs are like, you know, like circling each other, getting ready to fight over this like sack. And Ed Norton's like, wait, like, why don't we open this to see if it's What's worth sack, yeah. like chewing ourselves? Uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, and it's chewing... all just like disgusting. Uh, yeah. Crazily enough, it is the decapitated head of Gwyneth Paltrow in the sack. <laughs> Pretty wild that they did that. And he goes, you know, okay, it's worth it. And then they start tearing each other to shreds, which by the way, was one of the things that I was like, this is supposed to convince me he likes dogs. But, you know, like Ed Norton's, uh, Rex is like, you know, part in that and then later on like all the dog voting scenes like you know i think we should vote and like i thought all that was just like super cute um and then when the again the the party is separated and they're kind of yelling up at rex and the others like you know jump where here when (laughs) now (laughs) like it just i don't know something about it was just like really i I think there were like three more after that it was just like Again, well, just that, that's also just what's so charming. I feel like in the first, what I was talking about maybe at the beginning is that the 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 real like childish, almost like Moonrise Kingdom esque that you're sort of evoking adventure in this film, like that is what that is like. That feels like the heart of the of the movie to me. It's it's everything after that just sort sort of feels like a shrug, to me. Yeah, I I think I agree with that because I'm I'm enjoying, you know, all of that, and then we get to like you know the last act of the film where you have you know tracy's kind of savior complex and you have the yeah, mayor yeah. saying things like she's been sent by foreign interest groups to destabilize us that was a direct quote that i wrote down i'm like oh yeah. my god like this is too real like i can't i can't like you know i don't, I don't want this in my in, in this movie but... do you think he was right though do i think he was right though we have to <laughs> set aside a separate hour for that um but... <laughs> there's no good answer it, yeah i don't know i so this is all to say that Ed Norton and the others, just like the, the things that even if the the voices and the parts themselves aren't as distinguishable because of the nature of the voice role and the animation and whatnot, the, the thing that makes them stick out to me is just like the earlier, like whimsical adventure side that really mm-hmm. comes out. Um, not to say that, you know, like some of the more serious moments don't also stick out, like the handing off of the guard dog duties between uh chief and uh i'm forgetting leah schreiber's dog's name is spots not spots thank you it's not sport that's the that's the one other they found dog in the, cage. the skeleton that wasn't actually him yeah. yes but like that was a super and like you know that was that wasn't like whimsical or adventurous like it was very wholesome and like emotional and like that was great too but yeah some of that other stuff that comes later like you talked about i i do i do enjoy the like the whimsy that that comes out from the main cast yeah, it, it almost feels like it, it, it has a, become a trademark of of Wes, you know, starting with Fantastic Mr. Fox. There's so much whimsy in that narrative. Dar- darkness as well, but but whimsy, no doubt. Moonrise Kingdom is probably the peak of that. You still get a healthy dose of it in Grand Budapest Hotel. And again, I'd stand by that the first half to two thirds of this film fits comfortably in that category as well. It just sort of strays the furthest from that, maybe in the final act of any of the films that I just referenced. But for me, guys, I frankly can't believe none of you have said that um, the voice actress for the assistant scientist, Yoko Ono, 
voiced by Yoko Ono wasn't the standout voice role for you. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, un- unbelievable. I mean, if you're going to call the character Yoko Ono, you pretty much have to get Yoko Ono, right? Like, well, I, pre- I presume that was part of the bit. Yeah, it would be really yeah. weird if they called her Yoko Ono and did not have Yoko Ono voice in her. Uh, that'd yes. be a separate issue. But I will stay in the in the comfortably similar um, thing just to call it deeper down the cast list. I did enjoy Tilda Swinton's Oracle, uh, the little pug sidekick to Jupiter, mm-hmm. who is F. Mary Abraham's character. Uh, really enjoyed her small role. Thought she stuck out. Uh, was thinking we really have not gotten enough uh, Tilda Swinton in Wes Anderson. Um, Next movie. L- luckily, that that will be that there will be a bomb for that, which I believe. Uh, not not just the next film, unless you are talking about Asteroid City, Scott. But I think I believe she's in Asteroid City as well. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I believe if she's right. not in but Asteroid I mean, City, I'll... she's in the other Wes Anderson film coming out this year. Okay. She's I'm in not, one of them. She's in either Henry Sugar or Asteroid City. She's I don't know which French one. Dispatch, that's all I was saying. Yeah. Sure. 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 Yeah. So I I did enjoy Tilda, uh, someone who I feel like I constantly warm to every single time I see her in a film. Um, so Scott, which I guess. Is what? That, all that's to say is that we have to watch Michael Clayton. I was so, going to say, so, which is why I am I am chomping at the bit to show you her Oscar-winning role in Michael Clayton. So. Sure. Um. So we'll remedy. We'll be remedying that, and you know, even before this this podcast yes. is released. So just confirming that she's in Asteroid City, and she's also in David Fincher's The Killer this year. So we're we're eating. Um. Big. We're eating. Uh, and of I course, guess an, another countdown course, relevant movie. Look at that. Of course, Memoria is still going to be screening across the country one city at a time. So you can see her in, in Memoria. Yeah. Across well. the country, one city at a time, or in other words, every other week in New York. I believe I believe it's in Hackensack, New Jersey now. Just, you know, is that real? Are you just making, Memoria you just making cities up? Because that's basically I'm, I'm New York City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like I've recently just started to watch every new Tilda Swinton movie unintentionally, maybe. So there's there's some warmth to her to her performances that must gravitate me toward her because I've seen obviously the French Dispatch, but saw Memoria, 3000 Years of Longing. I saw The Eternal Daughter last year at the New York Film Festival. I guess I didn't watch I didn't watch Pinocchio. Um, And apparently she's a couple of voices in that, but whatever. Um, Anyway, enjoyed Tilda Swinton's role. Happy that we're going to have more of her on the horizon with Wes because it's kind of cr- I feel like it's kind of crazy they hadn't worked together before this because I feel like their personalities really link up a lot. This has become a Tilda Swinton episode of the podcast, so I apologize to everyone. But yeah, enjoyed enjoyed that. Got- Earlier on, guys, I feel like I referenced some of the story parts. You guys maybe acknowledged it as well. Loved the adventure element early on. Thought thought things were very followable and I was very invested in this journey to find spots. Not that I wasn't invested at the turn after that into the third act, just to focus a little bit more on that piece. But it just really felt like Wes had maybe constructed a film in which he could place an adventure that is more his speed and then sort of put it in a wrapper of something that I'm not sure I totally got. And I'm Scott, I'm going to look to you because maybe you're the person I'm firing from the hip here, but I think maybe you like this film the most of all of us. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of the third act of the film. Do do things tie together well for you in this? Do you, I know you said that some of the plot gets convoluted. That's not really quite what I'm asking. I'm, I'm curious if you think that things come together okay in the third act, you know, leaving aside the stuff with Tracy. I mean, I, you can you can mention yeah. that, of course, but. I mean, mostly I will say that I do think there is something like a little tidy about 
oh, it's like, well, he Mario Kobayashi, he won the election or whatever, but he was caught in a, some scandal. Right? Don't they just refer to it as like he was caught in, he was scandalized or something? Like they're very vague about what happens or whatever, but basically it just seems like some sort of machination to get Atari installed, obviously, which is what, you know, the movie yeah. wants to happen. The Wikipedia summary says it is later revealed that while Kobayashi did win the election, he won't hold office because he was, quote, caught in the scandal. Yeah, it's like, well, you mean all of this stuff wasn't able to take him down? But I then thought that some, was the know, scandal. Like, I thought that his involvement in... It, the, it very well may be. I think the canine like, flu stuff was the was. Yeah, the I, I think that but was the, the way reason that, it ended up not being him. Yeah, perhaps. The way that they refer to it in the movie is just kind of weird because they don't co- explicitly say that, if I'm remembering correctly. Like, they are just... May- maybe it's heavily implied and Damn, dumped up, but, okay. but anyway, I thought that part was kind of weird. No, yeah, like he, he has a little bit of a redemption arc. You know, it leaves you with some hope considering that a lot of this movie, given recent events, again, makes you feel a little cynical about the world in which we live. Um, so I did like that part of it. Yeah, I, I guess I do think the Tracy stuff kind of puts a stain on some of it, but the 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 culmination of the arc of the Kobayashi characters and then, you know, Chief and Spots, it works. And, you know, they, they all live happily ever after, obviously, with, um, you know, Chief and Nutmeg together and then um, Spots together with with his partner, whatever her name is that I can't remember now, but. Um, is it peppermint? This, I, I think it's actually uh, I, peppermint. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it Kara? I think it's Kara Hayward from Moonrise Kingdom, actually. Oh, from Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, okay, yeah. 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 Um, it's it's a nice ending. Again, I like that it ends on a hopeful note, considering that some of the movie is, you know, kind of dark. I guess it's fair to say, and, and cynical a little bit. You know, West doesn't always leave you feeling warm and fuzzy inside at the end, and maybe you're not quite fully warm and fuzzy at the end of this, but it's, it's definitely closer to the fantastic Mr. Fox ending than it is to, I don't know, one of the movies that doesn't have a hopeful ending, I guess if, if there's one of those out there, but <laughs> I, Scott, I'm going to have to tell you that you've left out the other coupling that, that is heartwarming. Tra- of course, Tracy and, and Atari. Yeah. yeah. True love crosses borders, Scott and languages. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I'm pretty pretty sure Tracy doesn't know anything that he's saying, but that is okay. Greta is innocent. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to defend anything about that character, but Greta is innocent. Yeah. Yeah, Tracy and Atari, a couple. Chief and Nutmeg are their bodyguard dogs, I guess, although I'm not sure Nutmeg is doing any bodyguarding. Um, And then, yeah, I did. I will say, all that aside, I do really like the final shots in the movie with Spots and Peppermint in the, like, Shinto temple. Yeah. Again, it feels very like we, we he does these like shots in like all of the movies, right? Of like, oh, we're gonna like scroll through everybody and see like you know here's yeah, how they ended it's up. It's first on the bingo card for sure at this yeah, point. It's a classic Wes Anderson shot, but it gets me every single time. Like I love it, you know, when we're starting off in Moonrise Kingdom and he's going through the house and all that. And, um, yeah, it's 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 a you know it's something that he's mastered, but yeah. he can keep doing it as far as I'm concerned. Jay, did you feel similarly about a, re- a redemption arc for the man who was trying to commit dog genocide? <laughs> I mean, when you frame it like that. <laughs> well, that is, um, I think, what happened, but go ahead. It, it is, but, you know, framing framing is relevant. Um, 
Sure. No, I mean, I, I, I was okay with it. And I will actually just say I liked it. Um, I remember when his, I'm blanking on the name and I really should just have this up of his like associate who's like. Major Domo. Thank you. Major Domo. Uh, it's like introduced, like I just wrote, you know, another creepy hatchet man thinking oh, about, yeah. <laughs> about him. the last one. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, like, you know, I, you know, like depending on the movie and the vibe, like I go back and forth on like whether I feel like the, the villain in a movie like deserves or even needs a redemption arc and whether it just feels kind of unnecessary, to, like give that moment of hope, like can't just the good guys win. But I didn't feel that way this time. Yeah. I was like this is nice, you know, like way to get your head back on straight. Uh, at, the, all I'm at saying, the last second. All I'm saying is I don't know if he needed or deserved a redemption arc, but considering again, the real life context, which I cannot necessarily divorce this movie from anymore. Um, we know that the, the real uh, people who were uh, involved, the, the real uh, parallels for the people in this movie did not have any sort of redemption arc will never have any sort of a redemption arc and are basically unreservedly evil and so i got enough of that in in the real world i am fine with them giving a, a redemption arc to you know mayor kobayashi here yeah i, I guess my I, i'm just wondering guys do you think being Bunce and Bogus deserved a redemption arc in, uh, in Fantastic <laughs> Mr. Fox. You on board with, with them getting their redemption arc at the end of the film? No comment. Um, Scott, Scott, this one's for you, man. You're, you're, you're <laughs> stepping into this. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, opened, uh, I've opened... You've opened uh, the floodgates. Who doesn't deserve redemption now? Um, sure, Scott. I like to see the best in people. How about Michael, Michael Gambon trying to, trying to, trying to serve, serve his time, make his way back, make a have a family of foxes on his estate. I like to see the best of the people. Sure. If that makes me a, a bad person, sue me. I, I, I think we're sort of nearing conclusion here. One of the things that I could not help but think about while I was watching this movie, and it sort of goes off of your last comment, Scott, about the sort of, you know, impossible to not think about the pandemic while watching this film and the context of that. I'm curious, though, if... Obviously, context matters to this movie. And this movie was made two years before that happened. So it's important to remember that. But if this film were to be watched by someone for the first time today, is this film like super political and like kind of conservative? Oh, in what regard do you mean? People unilaterally using powers to assert control during a pandemic being viewed as very bad. All right, I'm 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 gonna chime in, um, <laughs> please. Well, because like I understand the characterization of it that way, but I think that like depending on who you ask, right? Like it's not. I'm asking you right now. Well, like I mean, okay, because I think you know we have certain views on how like power should or should not have been wielded during the pandemic, and there are people who would like you know on the feel like the opposite right and so like i think framing it like i think i think i think no matter which side of it you landed on i think you could watch this movie and see the other side well that that might be a fun that might be a function of a political myopia 
that exists. Sure, within, like, I, I, I mean, and I think well, that's why I just before we start saying that this movie is like really conservative or yada yada, like you know, I'm I'm just gonna throw out like I think, I think I think people across both sides just because of uh-huh. you know what you describe like would look at this and see the other side, right? Like it, it's a classic tale of like you know they're doing exactly what we're doing, but we're gonna get mad at them for it. Like we want to use the same amount of power for this and over and do what you think is overstepping, but on the flip side, and I'm not saying that like one side is better or worse, but I'm just saying, let's just not do this. <laughs> I'm actually just trying to nip this in the bud. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just, I don't even, I'm not quite following it because obviously again, you have Kobayashi being the figure who is using this serious health issue as a you know smokescreen for his like prejudices and whatnot mm-hmm. and then you have the good guys who are like affirming the dignity i suppose of the marginalized group here right which would be the dogs which i don't necessarily see any of those things as being conservative angles but mm-hmm. yeah so I mean, it sounds like you're almost agreeing with what jay is saying here it's like it almost is what point of view you come at it from yeah it's just something that struck me Uh, obviously i'm not making any political statements about whether uh about anyone who was in charge during during a pandemic in ours uh, unlike scott made earlier but i will i will say that it is interesting typically i feel like seizure of government control during an emergency is is typically viewed as a liberal uh political policy i think to follow and you know, unilaterally making decisions, I think is, is typically viewed that way. And I, and I found that the notion, I mean, it is complicated because it sort of exists separate from this because he is, you know, Kobayashi is sort of viewed as this sort of authoritarian figure, which doesn't really comfortably fit, I think in any, you know, bipartisan political sort of landscape. But it was just an interesting thought that I had that like, I think that if you watch this movie, without the context of it existing before the pandemic and you were new to it, you didn't have any context. I wondered what you, what someone might think the politics of the film is. Um, I'm not sure what Sanderson really has any politics going on in this film. I'm not sure politics is something he's interested in all that much. Although he did spend a decent amount of time in, in the grand Budapest hotel, um, not seeming too kind toward fascists, but maybe that's nice. I was going to say, I don't think he was really taking a very controversial stance. (laughs) Sure. I mean, depends on who you ask these days, I guess, I guess, Um, (laughs) but yes, no, I, I'm not sure that there's too much political statement going on here, but it is, it it is an interesting artifact of having come out right before a time where I think that might have evolved a little bit. Just amusing that I had, I don't know if I have anything else to add, Scott, we know your favorite scene or moment already. Would you like to talk about it one more time? Just because I know you love it so much. I would have eaten that sushi, even if I knew it was poisoned. My guy, I can take you to a place here in New York City in less than a month. Let's do it and poison you if you want. Unrelated. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure I could do that in New York City, too. If I I, I was going to say if I looked hard enough, I probably wouldn't even have to look that hard enough to do it. But uh, just let me know. Yeah. Just give me a heads up. I'll, I'll arrange. We can just stick with the sushi this time. Maybe poison the next time. I visit. OK, cool. Yeah, yeah. I would recommend microdosing before you come before that. Just maybe get sure. a fighting chance. Uh, Jay, what, what was your favorite scene or moment from Isle of Dogs? Scott Shelton, you forgot to say just kidding. In case this does get well, that would be a lie though, ball. Jay, and I'm opposed to that. I'm happy to give Scott whatever experience he wants while in New York City, within reason. Which apparently includes murder, but not lying about it. <laughs> no. You know, I, just, I have a I have a personal ethic, Jay, to stand up to. Everyone's got a code. Yep. 
Um, my favorite moment. Um, Consequences. Chief. Uh, it feels weird to say it as Chief takes a bath, but I'm going to frame it as Chief is white. Like, I just thought that was so funny. I got such a kick out of that. Yeah. I was like, wait. Just when you thought you were going to have a bla- another black well, character a in a Wes Anderson film, actually, he's white. Yeah, so. I knew you were going to say that. Um, <laughs> but I just. I'm sure I, somebody else has made that joke. Oh, somewhere. so many. I'm sure. But no, oh, I, I just found that. I, I mean, I just. I. I didn't quite cackle as loudly as you did when Willem Dafoe threw the cat out the window in the last sure, one, but I, I sure. cackled when that happened. Yeah. Um, and just response. their ensuing, you know, the fetch game fetch scene. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I just found that really heartwarming. Yeah. I mean, super sweet, right? Like, did, did you see that, that plot twist coming? Did you see it coming? No, no, no. Yeah. No, I mean, I. it's one of those things that's like, I think, I have to sit down and like really think about this, but I feel like in, in movies with dogs, right? Like generally like darker dogs are the more alpha gruffy, like, you know, wow. Doing some racial stereotyping. No, I mean, I I feel like it's just, I, we gotta, now we have to do like a dog movie countdown, right. To like prove or disprove this in in my mind. Like, you know, I'm not watching the art of racing in the rain or whatever. We're not wow, watch... that now that is a title right there. I, I, totally I was gonna forgot. just stop at Beverly Hills Chihuahua, but that's okay. Um The Art of Racing in the Rain. Well, now that is a fake movie. This is like a best selling book, Scott. No, it's like based you on a best selling book. Me that, that movie exists. No, I, I I'm aware of your mother trailer. has read that book, I bet. I be, I remember the trailer uh distinctly as it was played many times in the theaters in 2019, I guess it was, but sure. I'm not convinced it's a real film. Well, it's definitely a real New York Times bestselling book, I think. I, I, I am not disputing that. I'm just doing a bit here. Okay, you, you don't need to look anything up. I was going to say, we, we, we took a turn here. <laughs> no, I'm, cur- I'm curious if I'm making it some... Because there are so many dog movies in 2019. Guys, there no, you're, so you're right. many that, dog movies. It was I had a to book. make sure that what I was talking I, about I was right. You know. Sorry, it dude, just seems you... like one of those things that just never actually happened. Like, like And it probably made like $150 million dollars at the box office. Guy. That's the saddest part. <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah so let's see let's we're gonna watch made. that we're gonna no, we only, only 34 million only 34 we million used to be a country yeah we did used to be a country we used to have movies about dogs with hip dysplasia but here we are now <laughs> <laughs> instead we have asteroid city um anyway jay were, we, were you done i'm sorry or you... i think so okay. but now i'm just thinking about movies we need to watch about dogs and whether i'm right about how angrier or alpha dogs like or tend next, to look more next, a certain way next countdown series is the a dog's purpose a dog's journey a dog's way home sure. series homeward bound we can watch homeward yeah. bound as, as a precursor to it and then homeward bound two and three and however many other straight to vcr sequels there were we can't even say straight to dvd can we and then marmaduke both the live action and animated versions <laughs> We've pulled out all the stops for this countdown, guys. Uh, that'll be the end of the podcast. Trust me, I will never watch another movie after that. I'm pretty sure. But alternatively, maybe Karen will finally listen to an episode of the podcast. Oof. So, there you go. Yikes. Well, Scott, you, what you was win, your favorite moment? You win some and you lose some. Uh, guys, I will say one thing about this. I didn't I didn't mention earlier on because, um, I don't know, it didn't seem like it really ever came up. But this film is deeply inspired uh, although it is stop motion animation, deeply inspired by, uh, I think, one Kurosawa, which maybe speaks to the, the scene that Scott was referring to. I think that the scene of the sushi is very, uh, very uh, evocative of maybe some mm-hmm. tropes and not tropes, but some visuals in a Kurosawa movie. 
Um, the other inspiration, Hayao Miyazaki, uh, a man whose uh, filmography is one that maybe we'll be jumping into a little bit later this year. And by maybe, I mean, definitely we'll be jumping into later this year for anyone who's listening to this podcast. Um, and I thought that was pretty cool. My favorite scene uh, from the film has nothing to do with that. I just wanted to say that. Um is actually one of the ones that Scott mentioned, or Jay, I actually remember who it was that mentioned earlier on, but it's sort of this broader scene where they st- intro to the dogs early on, where they're like fighting over different stuff. And is this, there's like, this is actually, I guess this is relevant. This is definitely a Kurosawa scene uh, where they're like lined up opposite these dogs on the other side. And they're like slowly stepping in towards these, uh, this food in the center. And then they fight over it. That, and then sort of what comes shortly after that when they're, um, on the beach head about and they see Atari for the first time flying. I think that was probably my favorite scene in the, in the film. Really loved the first half of this movie. All right. Out of 10, guys, what are we giving Isle of Dogs? Scott, you first. It doesn't feel quite right to give it an eight. I think I think I don't think it quite gets to an eight, but it's a really good movie. So I will give it a 7.9. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I mean, that makes sense to me. <laughs> uh, I don't dispute that at all. Jay Habib. I'm a little bit lower, but still really enjoyed it 7.2 all right and i'm comfortably in the middle at 7.4 i look i think it's a really enjoyable film i think i'd be very interested in a version of this movie that that cuts out tracy walker because i really think she's a completely unnecessary character uh maybe we didn't talk about that enough sorry people who wanted us to talk more about tracy walker uh i think you completely cut her out of the film pretty chill don't think too much changes to be honest and uh, a version of this film that simplifies the third act I was going to say, West, please just put Greta Gerwig in another movie so she can redeem herself from this. Again, not that she needs to, but she's just going to be associated. Somebody tells me she's doing just fine. She's going to be associated with this when you think about her in the Wes Anderson context. I mean, yeah, it's the only performance she has in an Anderson film, right? Unless I'm missing one. Yeah, it's the only one. Yeah, and she's too busy uh, playing with Barbies these days to get back on set with Wes. Well, that should just about do it for part nine of the Anderson countdown and our discussion of Isle of dogs. Don't forget to check out our podcast, Patreon at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. If not, it's okay. You can still find us on Spotify, Apple podcasts, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it. If you rated reviewed, subscribe, shared all that jazz. So we continue to reach a broader audience. And finally, really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Isle of dogs. We'll be back next week. with Part 10 of the countdown when we'll be revisiting Wes Anderson's most recent film, the anthology drama, The French Dispatch. We hope that you'll join us for that. But until then, for Jay Habib and Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.